So if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. And as you're turning there, just a little background. This, uh, this song, uh, the title of this psalm indicates two things. First, because it says here, set to the lilies, it's sung, it's a song. Not all the psalms were songs. Many of them were set to music, but not all of them. This one's specifically set to the lilies, and it's sung to a particular tune. And probably it was meant to be sung at a wedding, because here it says in the title, A Song of Love. So, um, and we can see, as we go through the psalm, we can see the, uh, as it'll allude to a wedding and to a marriage, and it'll actually, it's a, it's a messianic psalm that also alludes to Jesus Christ and his church and that relationship between Christ as the bridegroom and us as his bride. So we see that through, throughout it, we can see those pictures of, of the wedding and the marriage uh, relationship. And so we'll see that. We'll see the messianic aspects of the psalm. We're given a look into Jesus and his character. We're, go- we're given a look into his righteousness. We see his glory in victory and in justice. And we also see the church as the bride of Christ and the charge by the groom and the nature of her submission to him. And as Christ's bride, we are to submit to Jesus as, as, our, uh, as our bridegroom. So starting off in verse 1, to the chief musician, again set to the lilies, the contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. So that's the title. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The psalmist here expressing right away his, the basis for his worship. It's from an overflowing heart. And that should be the basis for our worship and our praise for the Lord. An overflowing heart. Why? Because he pours into us so much grace, so much love, so much mercy that our heart should overflow and that should produce in us a sense of praise and worship. And it should also produce in us an opportunity to bless others. As, as our hearts overflow from what God's done for us, we should be able to just give that out to others also. It should be the source of our commitment to God, an overflowing heart. And what comes out of our mouths, as he writes here, the, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. What comes out of our mouths or is written down should be the result of a heart given over to the Lord. So that should, that should be the basis for everything that we do. The fact that God's given so much to us that our hearts overflow and that, then that produces so much gratitude and praise and worship from our lives. And then in verse 2, it says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So already we're starting to see the messianic aspects of this psalm take hold. The psalmist turns his attention to the bridegroom 
who is Jesus Christ, manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. It's pure worship directed to Jesus. And although God has blessed him, he also in turn blesses us. He pours those blessings down upon us. It says in verse 2 that grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever, speaking of the Messiah, but also speaking of us. Because in Ephesians 1.3, it said, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, in the heavenly places in Christ. So blessings are poured out, and we would become the recipients of that. So a lot to be grateful for there. Verses 3 through 5. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So the groom here, again, uh, speaking of that messianic aspect of the psalm, the groom is also described as a military leader. And, of course, the greatest thing that a military leader can have would be a military victory. And there are three reasons listed in this psalm for the victory that we can expect from this king. First, truth. It says here, it says in verse 4, your majesty, in, and in your majesty you ride prosperously because of truth. He's prosperous because of truth. And truth will always win out over deceit. It may not seem that way as we're going through this life. Sometimes it seems that, that truth is, is behind the eight ball, so to speak. But truth will eventually win out. We have to believe that. And since we have the Bible, we have the truth of God. It says in the, it says in the scriptures that your word is truth. So the Bible is the truth that we can base everything on. So that's one reason why the king is prosperous. The second reason is because of humility. Now, we may not think of that in a military sense, humility, but humility is not a sign of weakness. Humility is admitting that, that there's someone greater than you who can give you the victory. Think about that. Humility in terms of a military leader is, means that the military leader knows it's not because of him that the victory will come to him, but it's because of someone greater than him. And here, it obviously speaks of God. So humility is the second reason why this, this military king was prosperous. And the third one, and just, just touching on humility one more time, as believers, we need to be humble. We need to admit when we don't have all the answers. We need to admit when we need help from the Lord because we can't do it. And that's a difficult thing for a lot of us. But God, we need to just trust. And the third reason for the victory is righteousness. Righteousness. And again, it, although it seems like wickedness and evil prosper in this world, righteousness will win out. And we need to believe that too. And 
Those are three characteristics of Christ that we need to exhibit. Truth, humility, and righteousness. And then we can be assured of victory. Then in uh, verses 6 through 9, again, we're going to start to see the messianic aspects of this psalm really come into play. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So here, right, right away in verse 6, we see a verse that may be familiar to many of us, but in the New Testament. Because in Hebrews, Hebrews 1 quotes this verse exactly, speaking of and describing Jesus Christ. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And what I love about when we go to Hebrews and look at this verse, we see that it's actually God the Father speaking these words. God the Father is directly speaking to the deity of his own son. And there's, there's nothing better that you can get, no better evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ than the fact that God the Father himself speaks of Jesus as God. He actually refers to Jesus as God. So the Father in Hebrews identifies Jesus as the greatest among all. And, and so just to quote verse one in Hebrew, verse 8 in Hebrews 1, says, To the Son he says, so to Jesus God the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. So exactly quoted from Psalm 45, 6. Jesus is given more honor and more praise. His rule is eternal. And he will rule exactly according to God's counsel and his government. And we, we think about that just coming off of an election. It'll be a righteous rule. And how we long for that righteous rule. So continuing on in verses 10 and 11, it says, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. So now we see the shift. We continue with this with this bridegroom and bride picture that we see, this, this wedding and marriage picture. But now we start to see the focus shift slightly toward the bride. Although the groom remains the center of attention, this is the charge to the bride. Listen, consider, and incline. Give attention to, is what the psalmist is saying. Give attention to these following words. Forget your own people also, and your father's house. So what, what might that mean? Well, I, I can look back into Genesis and see a very similar verse when speaking of a man and a woman, 
I, of course, the first marriage was Adam and Eve established by God. And what did he say in Genesis 2.24? said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So going back to Psalm 45.10, forget your own people also. That's the, that's the charge to the bride and your father's house. Why? Because you want to consider the king. You want to consider your Lord, the bridegroom. He becomes now the most important relationship in your life. Just as when a man and a woman get together in marriage, all else, they, they forsake all else. They don't forget all else, but they start to now focus their attention on one another. The same thing in our relationship with the Lord. When we come into that relationship with God, we forsake all others and we focus on Jesus. And, and that should be the center of our attention. We are told to give our attention to the groom, Jesus Christ. Show complete devotion to him and faithfulness to him. And he will desire that relationship with us, it says. It says, the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. I love that. I love the fact that God desires a relationship with us. And... and there's no better relationship. If you want to get a New Testament version of the, of the uh, submission and the, and the relationship of the bride with the groom, the man and the woman, and that picture of Christ and his church, you take, if you're taking notes, you can go to Ephesians 5, and 20, verses 22 to 32 gives you that New Testament picture of the bride and the groom. Christ and the church, that great mystery that he called, that Paul calls it. And now, uh, continuing in Psalm 45, verses 12 through 14. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors, the virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. So now we're starting to see the royal wedding ceremony continue. And again, I, I think back to that first relationship, the man and the woman. The woman Eve was brought to the man Adam in holy matrimony. God brings those to himself whom he desires to be saved. So we see those pictures not only in the human relationships, but in those relationships with, with God. God will bring to himself, he'll draw you to him to save you. And it's a twofold, it's a twofold thing. When we are brought to him and we receive Jesus Christ as our savior, that's the first aspect of that relationship. We, we sort of enter into a, a contract we, 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 Christ is, is, our, is our groom and we are his bride and we become one with him and we are, we are supposed to remain faithful to him. That's the first aspect of that relationship. And we see the wedding clothes in, in these verses spoken of and we see that we are clothed 
in the white garments of righteousness of Jesus Christ as his bride. So we continue to see those pictures follow through. And then the second aspect of that relationship in verse 15 of Psalm 45, it says, With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought, they shall enter the king's palace. And that's our eternal reward. That's eternity. That's the completion of that relationship with Jesus as he prepares a place for us, as it says in the New Testament. And then he'll bring us into that eternal reward. Then in verses 16 and 17, it says, Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Now we see the offspring of that relationship and the remembrance of God's faithfulness as we pass it on to those who we come in contact with, those who we witness to, maybe our children or grandchildren or maybe people that we at our jobs. As we relate those, the faithfulness of God to others, they become our, like our offspring, our spiritual offspring. So we continue to see that, that relationship pictured. God is honored when we speak his name, speak his faithfulness, speak of his love and grace to others. God is honored because there are many more that he wants to save, many more that he wants to bring into the kingdom. So now we turn to Psalm 47 because Psalm 46, Pastor Mike taught on last week or two weeks ago. Actually, it was the it was the Wednesday after the hurricane and the Wednesday of the snowstorm that, we, that Pastor Mike taught on Psalm 46. So it was appropriate to everything that was going on at that time. So if you want to go to the website and get it, or there might be a CD still left on the counter. But to Psalm 47, the main subject of this psalm is of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And... It's over all nations, all peoples, and all the earth. So it's without measure. His sovereignty is, with, is, is on everything. All people, all nations, over all of creation. So in verses 1 through 4, we read, To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. And he will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. So we see right away in verses 1 through 4, true worship. Is, should be joyful worship, exalting him in praise, like we do when we sing his praises. It should be joyful. It says, shout to God with the voice of triumph. Clap your hands, all you people. It's, it's, we should be rejoicing in what God has done and continues to do and, on who, uh, and in who he is. 
He is awesome, it says in verse 2. The great king over all the earth. And again, it should give us comfort when we think about the earthly leaders. We see what's going on in the Middle East and, and who, who, can, who can be trusted among all of those earthly leaders. We don't know. Even, even today when there's word of a ceasefire, but, but we're not sure because Egypt's president may, hasn't been tested yet. So we don't know if that's going to hold. But as far as God's concerned, he is the great king over all the earth. We never have to be concerned about him. We know that he's, we know his character. We know he's faithful. He's the king of kings. And his gospel message will always triumph. It says he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. And I love that. See, the victory of the church is assured. How can I say that? Well, because in Matthew 16, it says, And I also say to you, Jesus is speaking, that you are Peter. And on this rock, which is the testimony of Peter's faithfulness in Jesus Christ, on that testimony I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the gospel and the church will always prevail. So God will subdue them, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church, the enemies of the gospel. God will perform that. He'll subdue them under our, under our feet. And then God's inheritance for us. In time, here, an abundant life, and then in eternity. Then in verses 5 through 9, it said, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over all the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together and the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Awesome praise verses here. Sing praises spoken of four times in these verses. Just to shout praises to the Lord. Verses 5 and 6 might refer to a procession that they have when they, when they have the ark of God, when the children of Israel had the ark of God and they had a great victory and they would have a procession, a celebration, and they would shout praises to the Lord. They would sing songs to the Lord, giving him the honor and the, and the credit for the victory, for the military victory. How much more should we be shouting praises after the victories in our lives? Now, there may, they may not be military victories. They may not be big great military victories, but those little victories, each and every day, those things that, that God, we know God is taking us through. We know God is performing in our lives. We should be rejoicing nonetheless. Verse 7, a statement of belief, again, as God as the king over all the earth. We continue to see this theme through several of these psalms, that God is the king of kings. And Again, 
another reason to rejoice. Because we don't have to depend on earthly leaders. God is the King of Kings. Divine sovereignty, it speaks of in verse 8, that he reigns over the nations from his holy throne. So why is God able to reign? Because he sits in holiness. And holiness is, is connected with divine sovereignty. The two go hand in hand. See, it's a throne of holiness because he should be feared by all men. For he is holy. He is righteous. But it's also a throne of grace and a throne of mercy. See, it's that dual nature of God. And a throne of glory because he, he should be praised by his whole creation. And then it speaks in verse 9 of a shield. A shield is, is a merciful weapon. A shield is not a, is not a, uh, a weapon of war necessarily. It's a, it's a weapon to shield against war. So God helps us in those ways. He, he's a, it's kind of a, a surety, a guarantee. And God's sovereignty is that guarantee. Awesome. Just praise Psalm. Now in Psalm 48. Psalm 48, a song of joyfulness and a psalm of reverence. Again, a, a hymn or a song, a song of confidence in God. And we'll start to see that throughout these verses, it looks as though the praise is actually attributed to the city of Zion, but it's really attributed to the God of the city of Zion, God of Zion, the God of Jerusalem. So as we go through verses 1 through 3, it says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. Verse 1, the church to God. Why? Why can we attribute this to ourselves? Because we can praise God as believers because we are residents of his community, of the community of all believers. So as it speaks here of the city of our God, we can consider ourselves residents of that city because we're all believers together jointly in that community, and we can praise him for that. His mountain, again, a mountain of holiness. His throne, a throne of holiness, righteousness, and grace. And then in verse 3, God is a refuge. And how often we need a refuge. The church should be a refuge. But it's not because of the church itself, but it's because of God who reigns over the church. For it, it's a refuge for two reasons. It's a refuge for sinners because we all sin. And we can come into the church of God, we can come into the community of God 
and we can find refuge there. We can repent, we can confess and repent, and we can find forgiveness in the community of God, in the, in the refuge of the church. And it's also a refuge for us as believers when we're going through trials, when we're going through difficulties. And it's unfortunate, I, I, a lot of times I see people, when they're going through difficulties, they stay away from the church. They don't want to. They they don't want to become. They don't want to be part of the, the community, of God. This is where you should be. This is where you find comfort. This is where you find encouragement. This is your refuge, when you're going through difficulties. This is where we all need to be. Verses four through seven. For behold, the kings assembled, they passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So in verses 4 through 7, we start to see the Bible now describing actually a threat to the city of Jerusalem from hostile forces. It says the kings assembled and they passed by together. They saw it and they marveled. But what happens? They come and they align themselves against the city of God. They come to destroy it. But what happens is they were troubled. Why? Why were they troubled? Because God stands ready to defend God stands ready to take down those who persecute his people. And as believers, as God's children, we need to put our faith in the fact that God will defend us to those who come against us. And how complete is that defense? Well, it's, it's complete. It says, when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind, completely Defended, broken, dispersed. The threat no longer exists. So when people come against you, when, when the church is being persecuted, when the media is coming against the things of God, don't think that they're going to win out because God will defend his people till the end. And then in verse 8 it says, As we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. The testimony of God's faithfulness throughout the ages and in, in our lifetime, we see his promises being fulfilled over and over and over again. And those stories of God and how he works in our lives to be to be spoken of, testimonies to others of what God is doing and that he'll establish it forever, the city, the city of God. Then in verses 9 and 10, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. These verses encourage us 
to give consideration to God's love toward us. We have, we have fought, O oh God, on your loving kindness, it says in verse 9. How much we need to just meditate on his loving kindness. Just give thought, give consideration to his love toward us. And his love is according to his nature. It says in verse 10, according to your name. Now, the name there in the, in the scripture speaks of his character. According to his nature. What is God like? We should know his nature. We should know his character. And we should be encouraged that he's going to love us according to that. Now, that doesn't always mean that we may not sometimes even be, be rebuked by God. But it's always according to his loving kindness, according to his nature. And his right hand is full of righteousness. So his dealings with us are always righteous, no matter what. And sometimes it doesn't seem that way when things are going on in our lives, but we need to believe that it's true because we know who God is. Verses 11 through 14. It says, Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following for this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Rejoicing. Rejoicing in God. But notice, not just of his grace and his mercy. Rejoicing of his judgments. You know, normally we rejoice very easily at God's grace and mercy and love. Very seldom do we rejoice over his judgments. But think about it. His judgments are necessary. In a, in a greater sense, his judgments are necessary to just to sort of subdue evil in the world. His judgments are necessary. And when we speak personally, his judgments are necessary to sort of bring us back to where we need to be individually, if we had no sense of God's judgment, then we would just, we would probably go off in, in our sin and never even consider repenting because we had no sense of his, of his judgment. So we should rejoice in that. And his judgments are good. His judgments are good. They're needful. To, for, for a world to do any good, judgment is necessary. And he's still in the business of protecting his people and judging those who come against him. So again, judgments to, to us that result in us being restored back to God in our relationship with him and judgment toward the enemies of God. Also, God will judge in those ways. And he'll be our guide, it says in verse 14. Our direction. Everlasting. Even to death. I love that. Throughout our whole entire life, we know that God will guide us. He'll direct us. He'll direct our steps. We just have to seek him for that guidance. 
And then in, in Psalm 49. says, to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Um, just to back up a little bit, this psalm deals with the most certain aspect of life. And they say that there's only two things that are certain in this life, death and taxes. Well, this psalm doesn't have anything to do with taxes. So this psalm speaks of death and the fact that it doesn't it it comes to all of us eventually and that there are people who look at life and death in different ways depending on where they are it also speaks in clear terms about the foolishness of those who trust in their wealth and we'll see how that connects with with the with the certainty of death and he also gives comfort to the, to the believer and encouragement to the believer. So starting in verses uh, 1 through 4, says in verse 1, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. So these four verses give us sort of the introduction to the psalm. And if you notice, it starts off, you can see it's, it's going to sound like a proverb almost. It's a wisdom psalm. So we're going to see that same type of style that we see in the, in the proverbs. Notice in verse 1 the extent of this message, what, where the scope of it where this message goes out to. No limitations. It goes to all peoples, all inhabitants of the world. Notice, no one is excluded from this message. Why? Because eventually, when we get to the end of the psalm, we're going to see death comes to all. So everyone needs to hear this. Give ear, he writes, both low and high, in verse 2, rich and poor, they all must heed the words of this psalm. And then, and then in verse 3, it speaks of four things that this psalm will contain. Four things that are, that are really, because it's speaking for God, that speak of God's words. Wisdom, understanding, proverbs, and dark sayings, dark sayings, it's like a mystery or a riddle. But wisdom, the deep things of God, understanding, those things that we need to really search and seek. This is a deep psalm. This is deep and thoughtful. Why? Because it covers a very serious subject that everyone needs to really, really consider. So we need to exercise our minds. We need to give them a little workout when it comes to considering these things in order to understand what God is trying to say. So then in verses 5 through 10, it says, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, 
None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. When he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Wow. So verses 5 through 10, we see, we see the foolishness of trusting in your own wealth because, why? Because none of us escape death, number one. And I think also, not only wealth, but just trusting in yourself, trusting in your own talent, your own ability, giving, and giving no credit or praise to God. I think that's also what the psalmist is saying. And in verse 5, he even says, trusting in yourself is sin. It says, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me, sin is always at your heels, sort of nipping at your heels, ready to catch you. And we need to, we need to avoid that as, as much as we can. Verses 6 through 9 speak that no matter how much money we have, it can't buy our entrance into heaven. I don't know if, if anyone has ever thought about that, but you can't purchase it for someone else either. Why? Well, think about it. How much did it cost God for our redemption? How much did it cost Jesus Christ for our redemption? More costly than gold, more costly than silver, certainly more costly than anyone's wealth. So how can anyone think or put his trust in his own riches for his salvation? But many people do. Many people do. Or they put their trust in their own ability, their own righteousness for their own salvation. Salvation costs a lot more than that, than anyone can even imagine a lot more than anyone can afford. See, it seems as though sometimes people who, put, who are very prideful put, put a lot of stock in their own wealth or their own riches or their own abilities, their own position in life, whatever it might be. They sometimes, somehow they think sometimes that they're going to cheat death. And it's funny because it says here that the rich see people dying all around him. It says, For he sees the wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless per person perish, and what happens to their wealth? They leave it to others. You know, you, you can't take it with you, so to speak. I remember uh, our old pastor saying, you never see a, uh, a U-Haul following a hearse. You can't take it with you. Think about that. So nothing that you have in this life is, is worth enough to buy your salvation. So then in verses 11 through 14, it says, Their inner thought is that their house will last forever, that their dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands after their own names. See, very prideful. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity 
who approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. The major point in the psalm here in verse 12, that although man dies physically, he lives on spiritually. And if he is wise, he won't be like the beasts of the field who have no hope of eternal life. See, it's only man who has that hope. No other created being has the hope of eternity with Jesus. The wise man has the hope in the knowledge of God's grace and mercy. Now, in verses 15 through 20, we see the scene shift to confidence in God's faithfulness to the redeemed. It says, but God will redeem my soul. See, as opposed to the fool, we start to see how God, how God relates to the faithful. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see the light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. So it says here in verse 15, death no longer has power over the believer. Jesus Christ has vanquished the power that death has over the, over the believer. A faithful person trusts in the Lord. A faithless person trusts in his own abilities. And we can have the assurance of salvation because of our faith in Jesus Christ. At death, for those who are fools who trust in their own abilities, again, just like the verse in verse 12, it's like the beasts that perish. So you can either be wise or you can be foolish in how you look at the things of this life. But the wise man will put his trust and his faith in God and the fool will put his trust and his faith in his own ability. I think, I think we need to consider those things. You know, when we, when we think about uh, what we are grateful for, you know, when we come to the, to the place of, of expressing our thankfulness and not to be thankful for the material things as much as the relationship that we have with God. You know, so a lot of people will be thankful for, and it's, it's, it's okay to be thankful for the fact that, that you, you know, you have, you're able to provide for yourself. But remember, it's God who also has given you that. So we're going uh, to see if we can get through Psalm 50. So hang on for, uh, strap yourself in for a little, a little ride here. A Psalm of Asaph. It's, uh, this is the first of the Psalms of Asaph. Um, and uh, so we'll see as we go through the Psalms, we'll see more that are either written by him, composed by him, or, um, or just even dedicated to him. 
And it speaks here of the supreme judge, God. And it's, we're going to actually look at a courtroom scene in this, in this psalm. And we're going to see uh, that the supreme judge, God, enters the courtroom of humanity to preside and to judge over the whole earth. So, starting in verses 1 through 6. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, he has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to earth that he may judge his people. Now this is God speaking. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. So here, again, the divine judge of the whole earth is going to now judge his people. It says in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if the judgment comes to us first and we feel the, the heaviness of the judgment of God upon us, imagine those who don't know him. Imagine those who don't believe how they'll be judged. So God is recognized here as he's entering into the courtroom. All will rise and give him honor and give him attention. And he's going to start to do the judging here. Hear, hear, O my people, verse 7, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. So here, God isn't rebuking them for their sacrifices because those were, some, those were things that he established. He's rebuking them from, for the heart that they bring the sacrifices. See, God sees the heart. He knows what's going on beneath our external rituals. And he sees what the heart is truly like. So he says, I'm going to testify against you, but I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices because those are things that I established. I rebuke you or I judge you for the heart that you have bringing those sacrifices. God won't accept our offering if it comes with the wrong motive, wrong heart. Verses 9 through 13, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of, go of goats? So God's saying, listen, I've established your sacrifices. You've done them and that's good. But it's not because I need anything. You don't sacrifice 
the flesh of bulls because I'm hungry and I need something to eat, God say. You do it out of obedience. What is the heart that you're bringing those sacrifices? Just mere ritual is not enough. And that's what God's saying here. It, the flesh that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed was not for God, but it was for the people. It was for the people. Offer to God thanksgiving. And I love that. That's why I wanted to get through this psalm. Offer to God thanksgiving. So as we, again, as we consider this holiday, who are we thanking? And pay your vows to the Most High. He's the object. He deserved the, deserves the gratitude of his people. Then in verses 15 through 20, he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So he's, he's again, he's speaking to his people. He's telling them to call upon him. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. So verses 16 through 20. We, the first part, we saw the, re, the rebellion was against God, directly against God. Now the charge that the judge brings against his people is rebellion against our fellow man. So you can compare it to the two tablets of the Ten Commandments where the first tablet represented, represented the law in relationship to the Lord, that vertical relationship, where the second tablet represents the law in relationship to how man dealt with one another, that, that horizontal relationship. It doesn't matter whether we sin directly to, toward or against God or indirectly through our relationships with others, it's still sin nonetheless, and God will judge. But God offers a solution in verses 21 through 23. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you. Now look, in verse 21, I'm going to stop there for a second. It says in, it says in 2 Peter that God is not lax concerning sin. Sometimes we think that because he hasn't judged us with a lightning bolt immediately, that he's sort of looking the other way. In verse 21 it says, These things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. Imagine that. God, he knows our hearts so well that he thinks that we, when we sin and we get a, sort of get away with it, we think, oh, God must not think there's anything wrong with this. God must have you know, decided that this isn't a sin now. He th we think that he's like us, but he's not. He's not lax. What, what is he? He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering. 
He seeks that he 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 does not want any to perish. In 2 Peter 3, if you want to read it on your own, you can read verses 3 through 9, but just think just listen to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that but that all should come to repentance. What's the solution? What's the solution to our rebellion against God, to our sin against others? The solution is repentance. The solution to the problem of ritualism, just doing those things without, a, without the right heart. What's the solution to the rebellion against God and against others? Repentance. Repentance. Restoring that relationship with Him. And He desires that. He desires that. It says in verse 23, Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. That's what we need to do. We need to restore that relationship with him. We need to recognize our sin, recognize our rebellion, recognize when our heart isn't right, even when we're doing the right things, but our heart isn't right, and confess it to God and repent. Amen? Let's, let's stand, we'll close in prayer and we'll close in worship.